0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Google Podcast. I am Rob Watson. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Jackie O'Carroll who's someone that has been leading the way for years when it comes to personal spiritual growth and has a wealth of wisdom behind her. Most recently, her journey has taken her towards becoming an end-of-life doula, which ties together her years of experience as a children's nurse, a life coach, as well as her studies into emotional intelligence and leadership. She also has practical knowledge of setting up local communities and the role they can play in building connection, which is something I sorely miss right now in this world. So first of all, Jackie, thank you for speaking with me today.
1: Oh, thank you, Rob. It's good to
0: be here. Right. Well, um, you reached out to me a while ago on Facebook and it was something when I checked out a little bit what you were doing, and I think one of the titles that you have is like holding space for grief and loss. And when you were mentioning to me that, you know, you're now an end-of-life doula, it's just something that seems very... Um, very timely at the moment with what's going on in the world. Um, We've, you know, it must be like almost twelve months going through this pandemic, and it's affecting everyone's lives in some way. And and death seems to be the real at the forefront, getting pushed right in front of us. And it seems to be well, it is something that maybe as human beings we're not that comfortable with. It's not something particularly in the West. I think they are so much much more in the East. But in the West, we kind of, you know, shut the door to that. We, we all celebrate birth, but death is still considered, um, you know, a very sombre kind of place. And, you know, there's an element to that because of his sadness. But, I anyway, mean, I won't go on too much. But if you can just let people know a little bit about, you know, what, you know, some people might not even know what a doula is. So explain what a doula is and your experience of being an, an end-of-life doula.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's true that people... Find it very very difficult to talk about death and people's response uh, to when people die is always or generally is awkward and people don't know what to say people are much more comfortable talking about um what they think about what happens after death you know the afterlife than they are about actual death um so my journey um has been one of uh being involved in supporting people Um, through death and dying, right back, way back from when I was a a nurse, a student nurse at 18. I remember that very clearly the first time, you know, being with someone who died. It was very scary as a young, you know, student. Um, And then, yeah, most recently, uh, I trained for two years as an end of life doula. Um, which was really interesting. And I did some of that work as a doula, a doula. The word doula actually means companion. So most people are familiar with a birth doula, uh, someone who acts as a companion to a woman or a couple through, through you know, in preparations for birth. A death doula is the other end, the other end of life. So being a companion to someone who's dying, but also supporting their family, and enabling them to—often it's uh, enabling them to um, explore and look at the things that they want—they want to complete before they die. So it might be to do with you know, difficult relationships, or it might be they want to create some sort of memory or legacy, and a doula would help with that as well as actual the actual physical care of, of a dying person. Um, unfortunately, my journey as a doula was interrupted by things that happened at the beginning of 2019. So in 2019, I had planned to complete that training but unfortunately, my sister, my older sister had uh, chronic leukemia, and she was waiting to start some new treatment, and she asked me to go to uh, France with her early that year. So I decided to put the doula training on hold and just focus on my sister, really. And then sadly, in February, she she got flu and got very, very sick and ended up in intensive care and subsequently died. Um But what I felt during the three, four weeks that she was in intensive care, I just had this very, very clear sense that everything that I'd done in my life, my nurse training, the coaching, the doula training, emotion intelligence work, it had all been in preparation for being with my sister in those last few weeks. And I felt an absolute it was a gift to me even though it was really difficult to be with her and to see what was happening to her she was ventilated some of the treatments were really pretty awful and um but you know it it just felt like everything i had all the skills i have were there to support her and that was that is very much what my work as a doula had been about um And also I wrote recently um, about my sister unknowingly gave me this gift, which was um, the gift of grief. And I've used that phrase. And I've noticed that some people are not comfortable with that. Like, how can you see grief as a gift? Grief is terrible. It's sad. It's, you know, it makes you angry. It breaks your heart open. But for me, that's where the gift lies in grief and loss um, that it opens us up. And and I talk now, and I'm about to offer some teaching and course on um, how grief and loss help us in touching the tender places. Um, And I found that in the doula work too, in the doula training, that um, we have those places, what I call the tender places. And sometimes we don't even know that they're there (laughs) because we've covered them up and we've buried them so well. And if we were to visualize them, we'd perhaps see them as these dark places with, you know, mud or cobwebs or places that we just don't go to. And grief, because of the depth of the emotion, grief takes us to those places if we allow it. And that's the thing. We live in a society that wants to avoid those deep emotions and a way of avoiding those is to live much more in a materialistic world. And so we talk about, you know, retail therapy and uh, I don't know, whatever you can think of watching lots of TV or drinking. I don't know. There's many and they enable us to keep those places tucked away. And if there's any risk that we might go there, then we do something to stop it from happening. Um, and and you know, lots of people don't even know that that's what's happening to them. Um, so for me, that's that's the beauty of grieving that it can that it can take us to that place and open our hearts. Mm.
0: Yeah, that, and. Just when you were talking I was actually getting like shivers a little bit when you were talking about that bit when you were that time with your sister and how it was a gift and in a way that was your final piece of training for you Mm. to to have and it's interesting as well because I often talk about this how everything in our life leads us up to whatever point we're at now and it's interesting obviously you got a lot more experience than me but you don't realize when you're going to be a nurse when you're 18 that that experience is going to be helping your elder sister in you know 40 years or whatever that time is so it, it's fascinating isn't it but yeah I find it um it's a really good conversation to have and it's interesting you mentioned about alcohol then and yeah you know people now it's smartphones just anything to distract us but when you think about alcohol and you think about funerals um you know the the experience I've got going way back everyone would be wearing black it would be you know, casket going in, very sad, lots of tears. And then the way to numb that is to drink an absolute, you know, a, a, a barrel load of alcohol to just numb, to numb the pain um, and alcohol has got its place, but I think it's definitely been, you know, definitely gets overused by us. And it is something that we we use to sort of distract us from feeling what's going on. I went for a spell where I didn't drink for four years. Um, and I had to feel all the stuff that came up where in the past I would be like, Oh, I'm going to have a drink at the weekend. that will sort that out, but it doesn't sort it out. It just, mm-hmm. you know, it just numbs it. So mm-hmm. I had that spell of just not drinking. It. it was just like, yeah, I've got to feel all this stuff. You know, it's got to, it's got to come up and I've got to, um... but yeah, so it's, um, it's a, it's a fascinating one. And when you talk about it, it reminds me of I've listened to quite a bit of Ram Das. The listeners will know that I speak about him a bit and he spent a lot of time with the dying um and i think it's just something that's so important that that we can do more get in touch with and of course you know it's our it's generally our greatest fear isn't it you know but i often find that a lot of us like it's inevitable it's coming to every single one of us yet people live the life in fear and then don't go and explore and do the things you really want to do or to let go and let free um because of that fear of, of of what might be, but it's coming anyway. You know, I'd rather live generally a shorter, richer life than mm. a long drawn out one where I was just terrified of everything and not willing to to look at yeah, stuff. Um,
1: absolutely. So
0: yeah. where does it take you at the moment now? Obviously during the pandemic, um, maybe that's something to touch on because... Um, it's been a really interesting year and it's been pushed in people's faces even more. Death just been constantly, you know, there. And mm. what, what are your thoughts around that?
1: Yeah, well, we are faced with death every day if we watch the news. It's interesting on the radio the other day, there was a discussion about uh, how that news is presented. because And I've noticed it now. Um, I, watch, I listen to the news as opposed to watching it, really. And they say uh, there's been, you know, so many deaths today. And the discussion was, could we not say so many people have died? And I was reflecting on that and thinking, well, why don't we, why don't newsreaders say that? And I thought maybe it's because when we say it's deaths rather than people, it kind of distances a little bit. You know, we don't have to think of those people who who have died. And I think that's a really interesting one because, uh, The prime minister does it the same when he does his, uh, you know, his updates. They all all say deaths as opposed to. And I think that's what we do. That's what we do with death. We try and distance ourselves from it, even though, as you have said, we can't avoid it. You know, it's coming to us all at some point. And I mean, I'm I'm a bit older than you. So not that I think about my own death, but I have. And part of, uh, you know... Uh, day that we did in the doula training was very much about thinking about our own death. What would we, what would we like it to be like? You know, and obviously you think, well, I'd like to be really old, but but reasonably healthy. I want all my family there, and you know that I want to be at home with all my comforts. Um, But so many people, that that isn't how death is for them, and so we avoid we avoid thinking about it. i one of I've I, I'm I have been and am comfortable talking about death. I've supported families as a nurse. I supported families. I was a sister on a neonatal unit for a number of years, and we obviously had premature babies who died. And um, in those days, long time ago, talks about the early 80s, uh, we'd only just started taking photographs of babies. When they died and even that for some people some some staff struggled with that so it's all changed now rob it's i i i was at the women's couple of years ago i was volunteering in the women's hospital in liverpool and i've seen that it's very very different which is lovely but in those days um we tried to avoid it, really, even though we had, you know, a baby who died and there was a family who who needed to be supported and to, to to be encouraged to hold the baby. And, you know, and I saw that very clearly and I saw that as my role to enable people, families to have that memory of holding the baby, being with the baby, maybe even, you know, coming back the next day to hold the baby again or let their children hold the baby. Um, and we had staff who found that they were so uncomfortable with that, you know, the idea of keeping on holding your the baby that's died. But that's part of grief, you know, part of um, being able to let go and to accept what what has happened. And I, I, I firmly believe that the work that I did then and that what others were doing was real a part of that process that we've moved into now, where. Um I think uh, there are there are nurses now who are, are much more able and more well equipped um to support families in that. Sorry, yeah. I don't know where, where we started with the question now.
0: That's <laughs> no, okay, it all it all ties in and uh, nicely. I think when you talk about that, I couldn't that must be one of the toughest things for anyone to go through to lose um a baby at such a young age. Um, you know, we, we've become more accepting of if someone, if like my granddad died when he's, you know, late 70s, early 80s, you, you can, you know, you can talk about, oh, he had a great life and look at all his children and his grandkids and he did this and he was, you know, put first for something that's so young and, and even. I don't know what would I don't know even a, even a child it might even be worse you know a child when they're two or three or four or five that when they, they've, they've built a really strong bond with the family mm-hmm. and then you know that I just I couldn't I know a few friends that I've, that it's happened to and your heart really goes out for them you know you feel like you almost yeah it really it really touches you and you could only imagine that kind of experience and I know there's a gift in all that as well but God what what a tough gift and.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. That must be. And I, I don't want to make light of it by, by mm. using those words, but, and, you know, I, I am, I am in contact with people who, you know, lost a baby many years ago and, and still grieve for that baby. Um, I've had other children perhaps, but, but the, the grief is still there. And, uh, you know, that is how we, how we connect with that grief. Like I said before, if it, if it closes us down, um, you know, it, it's not helpful, but if it opens us up, if it changes the way that we are towards others and to, the way we are toward ourselves, that we have more ca- compassion for ourselves because, because of having that experience. Um, I think the same applies as well. I'm thinking about, you know, when I had a miscarriage and people didn't know what to say. And I talked about, uh, I tried to talk about that with with people about losing a baby. Um, But miscarriage, it's changing now, but again, this is a long time ago. Um, People didn't talk about it. And actually, I remember talking to my mum about it, and she told me, you know, when I was in my 30s, she said, oh, yeah, I had two miscarriages. You know, when my mum was that age, lots of women had miscarriages before they even knew that they were pregnant, you know, and now we... And of course it wasn't talked about, but now we are becoming more open t- to talking about that and talking about our grief and our loss around that, yeah.
0: So in terms of the steps to moving through grief and potentially uh, you know, staying open to it and allowing it to move through us, because I think often things hit us in our lives and they don't pass through us, they literally just go in and that's it we shut off we use anything to distract ourselves without realizing all those things are kind of piling up within us what advice or process do people tend to go on that you would say to people to help them to explore i'm sure most people it is individual but there must be certain obviously talking therapy you know just having someone around you but i would be interesting to hear your thoughts on that
1: well as we've said we we live in a society that is in denial about death and so that's that's the first thing about grief that people don't want to hear about it a lot of the time and we've also um pathologized it so we've made it you know it it's made to feel like if you're grieving for more than you know a certain period then you need help yeah um And actually i see it as the opposite that grief is normal grief is this rich rich response to something which is breaking us open um and grief is not a journey that we start here and finish here you know grief is with us always there's there is no escape from that we can press it down we can distract ourselves but it will be there so The first step really is to accept how we're feeling um, and to be and to just be with that, you know, to be with those emotions. And that's the hard bit, isn't it? You know, when you've just lost someone close to you, someone you've loved, someone who's been a part of your life, for example. Sitting with those feelings is the most painful thing in life, I think. And yet we can't escape it. You know, because if we try and avoid it, it will pop up somewhere else. Um, I remember that um, when my dad died, I think I had two small children. And I thought, I, well, I don't think I consciously thought, but but I didn't really grieve. I felt like I didn't really have the space for that. And then I remember um, at some point in a year or so going to funeral for a baby. And I was absolutely distraught. I had to sort of lie down at the back of the church. And, and, and I knew it was about my dad. I, Although I was sad for what had happened to my friend, I knew that what was coming up was this grief for my dad that I had never really expressed. So that's that would be the first thing I would say. And then, yeah, absolutely communication. Taught, having someone who will just sit and listen. You know, not advise um but just sit and listen without with no judgment whatsoever um and and then to offer ourselves compassion and we struggle with that you know um to lo- you know we struggle sometimes to offer ourselves love compassion and kindness and those are the things that we need we're, we're better at beating ourselves up were better at saying I shouldn't be feeling like this anymore I've got to get back to work and you know and you know even that you think about I don't know in some places you might get a couple of days off you know to go to the funeral and then they expect you to be back in work back to the way that you were Um, when I when when my brother died I was a school nurse at the time and I went back to work and uh, a family. I was seeing a family, and I suddenly was absolutely speechless. I couldn't speak. I, I just, and I went to see my boss, and I said, I, c- "I can't do this job at the moment. I can't connect with people at that level because it's just too much grief in there." So I, I had to take more time off, and that's what we need to do—to be with it. That's the really hard bit—to be with it. The gift comes later but accepting and being with it is the first thing yeah and having someone to be with you to listen hold you physically I know that's not possible at the moment but yeah
0: yeah that uh, that's makes so much sense doesn't it and I think that just need you touch about how important it is for us to validate our feelings because I can know myself and sometimes I can talk about it but then I'll, I'll I won't um, I'll validate them to an extent, but then I'll say, well, you know, oh, but I know other people are going through a lot worse. You know, we can often do that. Whatever you've gone through, you can always say, well, I know other people are experiencing it worse or this, and I should just, and that that's where the validation and acknowledgement comes through. It's like, and it's so important to have someone there opposite you to just to listen, even just to say to you, that must be so tough what you're going through now, mm. rather than an element of, oh, try and fix this. This is what you can do. You know, I know that in my past, my experience has been, I'm a bit of a fixer and maybe it's a bit of a male thing where it's, you know, an element of like, you know, um, um, but now I've, I've, I've got a lot better of just listening. Um, yeah. because sometimes that's all someone needs is just someone to listen to. They don't need answers. You know, what, what is the answer Sometimes, And, and who, who am I to try and give an answer to someone? It's mm-hmm. like, if that's mm. it's all ego isn't it? It's like no the yeah. best thing I can do. Yeah. I had a great quote once that said, um I think it's uh, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens mm. and that I just find yeah. that's that's so true and I think I used the word wisdom um in the introduction about you so and that's definitely coming through for me um it, it'd be I inter- think just
1: to just to pick up on that Rob about the listening because we can listen on a number of different levels. we can be listening. But what's going on in our head is what we're going to say next. So that's kind of half listening. And then there's listening, what I might call deep dive listening, where we are listening intently. Um, It's what, you know, counsellors are trained to do. It's what, I mean, I, I have done this kind of training where we're just sitting, but we're also listening to what is underneath the words. So what is coming from the heart underneath those words, the feelings, the emotions, the the desperation perhaps. And there is no response to that in terms of words or advice. It is just like you say, you may say that sounds so difficult for you. And that's just validating what the person is saying and feeling. And that is so important. That is one of the greatest gifts that we can offer to others who need to be heard, to validate what they're saying, but also what they're feeling. You know, and that might just be an intuition that we sense what they're feeling, but we can validate that by just being there, yeah we we're, we we're, we're, we like to give advice in some of those situations because we because we're very uncomfortable with the strength of feeling that we that we're hearing or you know the other person is expressing and that we're uncomfortable with that perhaps so we try and give advice to sort of push it back if you like give it back to them you know i don't want this <laughs> um but also yeah and perhaps a bit of ego there of like oh yeah i've been there i i know what to do you know um so these are all traps that we fall into me included um so being aware of that of how we can listen d- deeply and intently. And sometimes there are questions that we might ask which enable the person to just go that little bit deeper. You know, it would be an open question. Um I'm not I'm not saying that's the right thing to do when somebody's grieving, but at some point that can be that can be helpful. Yeah.
0: yeah. When you mentioned about when often you're in a conversation. To someone you know we've all got it in us to the ego particularly it's just waiting for them of a person to finish speaking so i can then you know i've got to say what i do and i find that doing this podcast has been a real lesson for me um it's a bit of a challenge because there's an element of me thinking well i need to be thinking of a new question or a new response but it ties me with a lot of the Eckhart Tolle stuff that i've been delving into deeply more recently and how he talks about when he goes up on stage and he's talking in front of, I think he did one last year in front of 40,000 people. He said, he doesn't know what he's going to say until the words start coming out. Now, obviously he's a master of this and he had a huge awakening, I think when he was 29, he was homeless at one point. He was completely, his mind was destroying his life. He has a sharp awakening um, and almost attaches himself from his ego and becomes realized that he's the observer of what's going on. But I find that so inspiring to say, just to, you know, the word what's supposed to come out of you will come out of you when the time is right, rather than be thinking about all these steps ahead. Um, And this is what I'm going to say. Like for instance, it's nice. When I I first started this podcast, I would write down about 30 questions and I go through them all, you know, in order. And now I just have a few sentences and just see, see where they end up. Um, So, taking us into it's obviously we're talking about this already emotional intelligence and leadership and it it ties in with this maybe if you can just explain to people what emotional intelligence is and how sorely lacking it is potentially in society (laughs) and particularly i think in a big thing for me is education and children and the system that we're putting them in and you know it's all it's still that survival of the fittest, it's very competitive, it breeds insecurity. Um, there doesn't seem to be worse, you know worse the, the real life skills that we need. So it'd be good to just sort of touch on that.
1: Ah mm. oh, yeah, emotional intelligence. well, for me, emotion intelligence begins with self-awareness. And uh, in 2006, I think it was 2004, and anyway, somewhere around there, um, I, I did a year's postgraduate emotion intelligence course. It's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Uh, I nearly left two or three times. It was residential, like one weekend a month, I think. Or anyway, it was it was really tough, and it was tough because. It was revealing all these things about myself that either I wasn't aware of or I didn't like and uh, I used to tell this story of um being on a train station well in Liverpool with this with a big rucksack and the announcer announced that my train had been cancelled um so I thought it was okay. I'll get the next one. I had a connection to make, and I was being picked up at the end of the journey. Uh, then the another announcement: the next train was cancelled. So I just lost it at that point. So I found the the you know the uh, guard, whatever station, God, and I just well, I started shouting and swearing. This was a long time ago. Um, and he said to me, I think I was in my forties. He said to me if you don't stop shouting and swearing, I'll have to put you off the station. And I'm like, Jackie, you're in your 40s. You can't be put off the station. This is ridiculous. So I calmed down eventually and I went and apologized to him. And I tell that story because I had no awareness about the impact of my behavior. I was just, you know, I was angry. I wasn't going to make my connection, it made my whole day go wrong. You know, what, you know? Um, And it was only when I started the emotional intelligence work that I began to realize and to understand where that anger was coming from, and also to understand um, how the impact that I have on other people when I behave in certain ways. And that is the key to emotional intelligence. And in fact, when I was on the course, we had to role play, and I chose to role play that scenario, and I had to play the the guard, the, the the guard on the station, and someone else was me, and it was absolutely humiliating to watch someone else behaving as me, angry, swearing. I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> so yeah um being self-aware is absolutely critical to the way we behave towards other people and being aware of how everything we do and say has an impact on those around us um and I don't always remember that but I've come such a long way such a long way um and uh I've learned a lot too because um, I've been married for 39 years to uh, a a man who trained as a psychologist and worked as a psychologist for many years. So I've learned a lot from him. Like, uh, you know, when you say to somebody, you make me feel really angry. And he would always say to me, no, Jackie, you make yourself feel angry. And I'd be like, "Ah," you know, and eventually I began to understand it. Like, Yeah, I take responsibility for all of my emotions, for the way that I react or respond. And one of my greatest teachers has been Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun. Uh, And that's one of the things that I learned through her, um, that we learn to respond to others rather than react, and that we take full responsibility for our response. It is never about the other person. When I first heard that, I was like, don't be ridiculous. How can that possibly be right? And that is what I've learned over many years, painfully. No matter what that other person does, says, behaves, it is always about how I respond to that. And I take full responsibility for my response. That's hard. That is a hard journey. But it's so freeing, Rob. It just freezes completely from being at the whim of those people around us, be they politicians, friends, family, doesn't matter. We take responsibility for how we respond. And yeah, that's the journey that I'm on. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, that's the that is emotional intelligence. That's where it begins and ends, really. Yeah.
0: Wow. It's interesting hearing you talk, whether it be when you're doing the training to be a doula, right at the end, you have to spend the time with your sister. Um, When you're doing the emotional intelligence um, thing, you were suddenly tested doing that course on the train station. And then when you have this awareness that it's how we react, sorry, how we respond to situations and we have to take responsibility. It's often life, as you're going along, life has given you initiations to go through in them stages. And I find myself with stuff, we might delve into a great book or be learning something new. And it'll be in the moment that life will be testing you to see if you are, you're getting the mm-hmm. message and yes. you're going to pass these tests. Because I find if you don't look out for life's cues and lessons, well, those lessons will keep getting put in your face and they'll get mm-hmm. stronger and harder until you finally get the message. And yeah. rather than blaming life for it, I heard this great thing once saying that life doesn't happen to you. It happens through you. Mm. So if you can be from that awareness and realize that everything in front of you has been put in front of you to live and learn and grow, then you can see life as this beautiful, beautiful tapestry, this journey of growing and evolving. And I talk, I think about spiritual development a lot. And I think that's what we're here for now in this past year. People just want life to get back to normal, but I don't think it'll get back to normal. I don't think there'll be a normal. I think there's an element of we're going into this new earth, new world, and we need to learn those lessons. And I think the next few years or so many are going to be really uncomfortable as we look, because the way life has been and the systems that are in place, for me, are not fit for purpose and do not support the evolution of humanity and the planet. And unfortunately, not well, fortunately, those systems have to break down. But unfortunately that's an uncomfortable process that we're going to have to go through. And it could take a decade, two decades. It could take, I often think about some of the things that I do. And I think about planting a tree Um, I'm willing to do stuff now in this life that will help beyond me being here. Like if it takes me planting this now to do it, that's going to help my daughter's daughter's daughter for them. Then that's sort of like a, a bit of a great lesson for me and I don't know how I got going down to that <laughs> that's the thing this. Really. sometimes I talk and I'm, I'm on I'm on point about the emotional intelligence and it just goes off but I think you make some amazing points and um yeah it's really um it's, it's really really fascinating and what do you think about how we can potentially change the way we teach children around uh, emotional intelligence I know things for me I always think it all starts at a home but when if kids are going out and, and families are so busy um, and the kids are going to school and you know they're not necessarily the way I think about what kids are getting taught they're getting taught and in a way, it's crazy. We're getting taught to memorize stuff for tests when now the world we live in, you can just type into Google and you get the answer. Mm. Like we don't mm. need. much of the stuff that they're teaching us because it's 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 accessible in the ether you know we need to be taught i think emotional health physical health um how to you know how to grow your own food how to build and stuff make stuff you know um. but yeah what do you think about um education well applying this in an educational setting for children or how you would potentially adopt it with your own kids um yeah i'm not a
1: I'm not an expert on education Rob I have I've have two grown up kids who I hope <laughs> I hope are doing okay um I think one of the things that I've learned for certainly in bringing up my own children is about critical thinking you know about um questioning um and I, re- I remember when my son uh, okay when I did my degree I was 29 30 and uh it was, um, it was called Literature, Life and Thought. I did it in Liverpool. And one of those courses was uh, history. You know, I sat in a tutorial and the tutor said something about, um, like, uh, what, what did we make of this particular um, document? Or You know, I just had this light bulb moment. I remember jumping up. I was kind of jumping around the room, like, I can have an opinion about history. I don't understand that. That's not how I was taught history in school. I was taught, you know, open the textbook, read it, learn it. And it was just the most exciting thing to find out that actually you could question um, different books, different voices, different traditions. I was just blown away by it. And then years later, my son was what, about 14, 15. He was showing me his history homework. He had three different sources of the same piece of history. You know, one was like a woman's um, own story of what had happened. One was textbook, you know. And again, I just got that same excitement. I said to him, do you know, I was 30 before I knew that. And look at you at 15, you're already knowing that you you can question you know, and you can you can have that thinking about the way that we're presented with information. Um, for me, that that is absolutely crucial to education. And that also then leads us to where we were before about emotional intelligence, having that awareness um, about uh, the the way that we think and the way that we feel. um that, that for me that's crucial for children and the way that we bring our children up but also things like lots of schools now are teaching mindfulness and meditation or even yoga you know which is such a beautiful thing for children to have at that age you know a skill that um for life isn't it mm. yeah
0: yeah for sure um and then just but one of the
1: sorry one of the things yeah. that that takes me to is um that thirst for knowledge and awareness and reading. Um, I I grew up with that. That's one of the wonderful gifts from my parents, both of my parents, my mum uh, reading novels and my dad kind of reading texts. And I mean, he he was a he was a minister, so he, he was really into theology, but you know, I, I got that he always had a pile of books, you know. And we went to the library every Saturday and we'd take out four to six books and we'd read them. And we'd take them back. The next, You know, that's for me, that's such a gift to give that to children. I mean, maybe it's not books anymore. It's online or whatever. But the reading, having that reading and that thirst for knowing things or you know, not. I mean, I, I love reading novels. I'm, you know, always got one or two more on the go um and then as you've mentioned um you know spiritual books that teach us and, and guide us ramdas is you know pema chodron is a great teacher of mine jeff foster writes beautifully poetry as well i love poetry i find poetry really really helpful on my journey mary oliver um lots of different poets so that for me that's another i hope i've given that gift to my children and to have that thirst for books and um and for just wanting to to have much more awareness of other people's lives and um you know different ways that we can that we can uh, understand how other people live you know because again that's another element of emotional intelligence having that 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 desire to to understand how other people, function and behave and you know why they behave in certain ways um reading it you got me on books now rob reading a great book at the moment i dip in and out of it it's called uh the body knows hmm, i think it's called the body knows the score and it's about trauma i recommend it to anybody it's very easy to read but he's he's a psychiatrist researcher and um it's just opened me up to being much more aware about how trauma affects us you know particularly people who've had traumatic experiences as children um and how that affects us physically as well as emotionally and mentally just a, a brilliant book I'd highly recommend
0: <laughs> yeah it's um it's on our bookshelf we've um, yeah we've dived into that mm-hmm. yeah it's very true i had someone else on a podcast called brian penny who um he had some a lot of childhood trauma and it actually developed into him having like a 15 year addiction to heroin mm-hmm. and it was all traced back to experiences basically a newborn child and yeah. that was the tide when um i i often i've been thinking about this recently maybe i'll just I'll mention it um you, we often see maybe what someone has done say someone has created, done a horrific crime and it gets splashed on the media and and everyone vilifies it and they need to be thrown away, lock the key, bring back, you know, the death penalty and all this sort of stuff, yet that person, you know, what happened to them when they mm-hmm. were a kid, you know, did they experience horrific abuse as a child? Did their abuser as well, going back, you know, it becomes this mm-hmm. generational thing and ties. And I think we're very quick to blame someone for their actions and lock away the key. Yet, I think we're shown in this country, in America, that we have a pretty poor record of, um, you know, incarcerations and how many people go back. Where well, I think it's in Norway. They don't treat the prisoners like that. Most of them have keys to their own cell they have keys to the kitchen. They almost have these little islands that they live on in houses. And they have only 10% of them actually end up back mm. in jail compared to whatever it might be. I don't know what the stats are over here. So it's like we're going about it the wrong way. And I think if we can, um, we can recognize the trauma that people have gone through and help them with that trauma rather than make them feel like That their actions are just a reflection of what's going on inside of them yeah so if we can look at people's insides more and help them to overcome that with a lot of the stuff that you're talking about and many other people and particularly in that book the body keeps the score then we've got an opportunity to really transform society and really help people grow and release a lot of stuff people are just having it's a cry for help a lot of the time
1: yeah um i think um for me that In a way, that brings us back to grief, because um, when we bury those emotions, when we bury the the grief, um, it deadens us too. It numbs us to emotion, to our own emotions, but also to other people's. You know, that's why grief is is so transformative. Um, Next week, I'm starting a course called um, Transforming Grief for Our World into Sacred Activism. And for me, that says it all, you know, that when we when we allow grief and loss and not just talking about death and loss of, of, you know, relationship or all kinds of loss, when we allow it to transform us, uh, we can transform the world because because we then have that sense of love and compassion, first of all, to ourselves and then to to others to everyone else and that's that's my journey that's the journey that i'm on um so that would be my response to that really um and uh and you know through reading and studying just always having that sense of what can i learn from you know great teachers and you know um in our conversations, we've mentioned, you know, Brenny Brown, the wonderful work of Brenny Brown and her research into shame and vulnerability it was astonishing when it first came out about, you know, that so many of us, um, we, ju- we can't even acknowledge the shame that we carry. And yet we all carry shame. And what she discovered was people who are able to talk about their shame. And to be open and about it and to be vulnerable were people whose lives were so much more enriched and connected with others and had compassion for others. Uh, and that, for me, it's just absolute groundbreaking work. And she's gone on to do so much more. So there's another book, um, The Gifts of Imperfection. Amazing book.
0: My um, my wife <laughs> actually wrote on the mirror in our back bedroom. I am enough. So every mm-hmm. time you look in the mirror, you're saying I am enough. Mm-hmm. Cause most of the time our mind is saying, I'm not enough. I'm not good at this. I'm not doing this. I'm holding on to, you know, mm-hmm. they're better than me. I can't do this. You know, No, I am enough as I mm-hmm. am right now, no matter yeah. where I am in life, wherever I'm growing, whatever I'm developing in this moment, I'm enough. And from that place, that's probably where the true growth comes and the true, um, willingness to, um, Yeah. Yeah. But I haven't read much. I've watched the Ted talks and my wife's written, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, read her books and stuff, but yeah, she's, um, she's a popular, popular orphan house. And that's the thing that you're saying about books and stuff. It's so, I I realized I didn't really read much when I was younger. I only really started to read when I was about my late twenties. And it started with reading um, the Dan Brown books and all, you know, Mm -hmm. not, not exactly, you know, highbrow or anything, but they kind of got me into it. And and then um, through my own kind of um, health challenges and emotional health challenges, as well as physical, that put me on the path of, you know, looking to find help and it became, you know, self-help resources and books and journeys. And, my, and I think we go to school to be educated, but for me, true education has become through my self-education. Mm -hmm. and you know always having a handful of books on my bedside table at the moment I've got a newborn baby so I'm not reading as many books but (laughs) I've just started to be able to read again um the past few weeks which is really really nice as I go to bed for an hour so um and that's for me is when the true light bulb moments come sometimes so I'm like wow this is incredible it's so rich and I'm growing and learning and I know that you run book clubs don't you as well and um you have, um, you'll be doing them online now, I assume, of course you will be. Um, and I think that's something that I'd like to get more connected with because I'd love to be, um, what I'd imagine as well with them books is sometimes I'll read a book and then it'll be finished and I'll pick up another one, but to actually sit with that book and discuss it and allow yourself to integrate that knowledge um, would be, well, would be a real gift, I think.
1: Yeah. I. In the past, I, I, read a, I, I ran a book group, and one of the last book we did, I think, or one of the last books was an Echo A New Earth, which is an amazing book. And it took us about, I don't know, somewhere between six and eight months to read that book, because we just kept cutting down on how much we would read. Um, and at the moment, I'm running I'm reading a um I'm running a book group, facilitating a book group, um, which is a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, which is a wonderful book about grief. Um, the sacred work of grief, just beautiful book. But what we've found in that in that book group is um, the group itself, well, yes, we talk about what's in the book, but that just sparks um, what we want to share about our our, our response to that, you know the, the emotions that's brought up. Um, where it fits in the journey that we're on. And obviously, particularly, we talk about grief, particularly. Um, So it's just a a beautiful experience sharing the reading of a book uh, because it becomes so much more than the book. You know, the book is like a jumping off point, really, uh, if you get the right book. So, yeah i'd highly and recommend good. book groups. it's, it's
0: finding interested. as well um yeah it's finding those like-minded individuals so you can really like delve into stuff and get excited about it because sometimes i'll share information about a book and i'm like and i'll be really passionate excited about it and i'm like mm. enough you know i'm not interested in that right now or you know i'm in something else so i think if we can build um a bit of a community really which i think ties us in quite well to the fact that. Um, I talk about community quite a lot in this podcast and the importance of us kind of getting back to our roots and reconnecting with, our um, with ourselves, but also with people on a more human level. And I believe that you, you started a spiritual community, was it in Liverpool at some point?
1: Oh yeah. Um, I think that was like in 2013. Yeah. We started a community called make space. Um, we, in fact, we, I started a book group, uh in the summer of 2013 and uh which was great was w- with a couple of people and then um and then a woman came along karen and uh she she just wanted to be uh, part of it and we set up make space together i mean it was just a magical a magical time so we did that for maybe three or four years and ran events and yeah we had the book group and um and had a great man graham who used to teach us meditation and tai chi and yeah we did all kinds of things it was lovely it was really lovely and but it kind of came to a its own natural end i mean i started it because i couldn't find the community that i needed in liverpool at that time whereas now um there are lots of there is there is a great spiritual community in liverpool with lots of little sort of you know inner groups within that um yeah so that was a that was a a great learning curve for me (laughs) yeah
0: but it was Now like you say yeah now 2021 um the past 10 years or so have really grown like it does look like sometimes from the outside world like lots of things are in chaos but there's also so many um we're being pushed to go down different avenues and, you know, building a community, getting connected and stuff more with like-minded people and stuff. So, yeah, it sounds um, it sounds like you've had, a, a, so far, you know, plenty plenty more to come, but, you know, an amazing, rich life. And what I admire about you as well is the way you've been willing to change direction. And it's not like a huge 180-degree turn, but it's kind of, you You know, you were a nurse and you were, became, you know, your sister and, and then that's evolved and grown into something else where sometimes people can just get into something and then that's it and that's great but i think it's nice that you've kind of just kept on growing and learning and evolving and and each each step of the way has been you know it's been part of the experience that feeds onto the next but it's a nice way to approach life i feel like be willing to stay open to keep learning and keep growing
1: yeah oh thanks for that rob in the past when i was nursing my cv was just like every two years i'd go and do a different job and learn something new and i used to think oh god you know when you look at my cv i'm like what's wrong with this woman why can't she stay in a job for longer than two years but yeah i look at the journey now and i just think um it's it's it's, it's wonderful i love it i love the change of it's not so much a change of direction it's more of a kind of um I want, to, I want to use everything that I'm learning. So that means maybe doing something a little bit different. And also, you know, like I was saying before about everything I'd learned brought me to this place of being with my sister. And now I feel like that about the, the, the this work that I'm doing now around grief and loss, that I couldn't do that without being, first of all, an older woman. And secondly, all that I've learned and continue to learn through reading, through other people, through my own experiences and, and spiritual journey, has um, brought me to where I am now. And who knows where it's going? <laughs> I, I have no idea. <laughs> I've never had a I've never had a plan. That's for sure. It's just all kind of evolved, and um, and I'm so grateful for that. And I'm also grateful that I've got a husband who has just you know witnessed it and been like okay that's you know do what you need to do um because it's you know it's not been it's not always been easy um I did walk out of a job once I won't go into detail but I did walk out of a job once and uh, my poor husband had to just kind of be like okay we can get through this you know and I did that because I wasn't I wasn't being true to myself and I was someone I didn't like at that point. Um, and the only way to, to deal with that was to was to, is to walk away from it and recognize the need for boundaries and to you know re- reconnect with who I really was. Um, so there's been, you know, there's been some really tough times. Um and uh, you know, when I When I look at the whole journey around grief, um, a lot of my passion and my feelings around that is related to having lost both my parents, a brother who died of AIDS, and most recently my sister. And again, you know, there's a gift there, isn't there? You know, I wouldn't be doing this work if I hadn't had all of that experience of grief and loss which is a kind of strange, sounds strange to, to say that, um, but it has transformed who I am. And that's what I want to enable other people to have that experience too. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, I feel like I'm in a really good place, even though it's painful at times, because when your heart opens, it makes you more vulnerable um like when last weekend a friend a friend died and then on the Sunday a friend contacted me to say that her husband had died suddenly and I was absolutely well I was physically affected by it I was kind of lying on the floor and I knew that it was pain and sadness for others And I knew that that was because I've opened my heart to such a degree to receive my own grief that when that happens for us, we feel others' pain too. You know, you can't, there's no escape from that. And, you know, 24 hours later, I was okay. Um, But I can hold that. That's, I, I guess that's where I've got to now that I can hold that grief for others. Um, but it doesn't overwhelm me. Um, and the, the other thing just to mention as well is, uh, I wanted to mention is the memory tree, um, which, uh, I don't know if I don't know whether I mentioned this to you before. Okay. So on the 1st of December last year, which was world AIDS day, uh, I decided to decorate a tree in a nearby, just a small park because my brother, Simon, uh, who's a vicar, he died 25 years ago last year uh, and he died of an AIDS-related illness. I just wanted to... uh, mark that day and commemorate it so i wrapped the tree trunk in red ribbon and i hung red ribbons in the tree and tied other things for you know like my mum and dad and just ribbons and hearts knitted hearts and i put a sign on the tree to say that 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 what it was about and also to invite other people to hang things in the tree for their own uh, you know memories of loved ones and um a friend of mine, uh, Tom Seven, he filmed that for me. So there's a ten-minute film of the kind of uh, birthing of the tree, if you like. Um, and since then, um, <clears throat> obviously, I go back regularly, and it's become a little bit of a a, a place to go for me now. And it's changed. the ri- The red ribbon around the trunk disappeared. Poppies appeared. Uh, Christmas tinsel disappeared things that other people had hung beautiful things have disappeared but then other things have come and uh recently I've gone at about half three when children are around so I've had some lovely conversations with children about their granddads and you know what does this what's the tree and what's that hanging there and you know and uh last time I was there just a few days ago um there was a couple walking by and they moved toward the tree and said oh what's it about and I explained and, and then they were laughing it's two men and then they were laughing and they were like oh yeah we're gay we're gay it was just so beautiful and uh and they talked about the, the tree and about AIDS and as they were walking away one of the guys turned around and he said we'll come back and we're going to bring a ribbon for Simon and I was so touched by that and I ju- it just feels like I wanted to talk about the tree because it's it's opened my heart even more and I think it's for our community locally it has opened people's hearts and 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 the film um too I think people have responded (coughs) excuse me responded to the film and it's been such a it's just been such a wonderful experience, and I didn't anticipate it at all. You know, I didn't really think any further than doing it, and I kind of thought, I suppose things will blow away, and you know, and it's just, it's just been great, such a lovely, lovely experience. I'd recommend it.
0: <laughs> I think that is a that's a lovely thing to hear, and a lovely story, and a lovely thing for you to do. And I think, on that note, it seems like a nice, um, upbeat way for us to wrap up this chat for today. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I will, I will check out that video. I'll keep, I'll put a link as well to it. So people can watch the tree and how that's sort of the journey that's gone on. But yeah, it's a beautiful way to mark and honor, um, and acknowledge, um, your, your brother. Um, mm. so Jackie, thank you for speaking with me today. It's been, um, it's a bit amazing. If anyone wants to, um, find out more about you is it what's the, is there any links how can people get in touch if they want to be a part of your you know holding space with grief and loss event
1: um i'm on facebook i think it's jackie o'carroll one and also i've got a youtube channel now with the video on it um i think it's the grief and loss project um and um uh, perhaps we could share my email address as well
0: yeah it's... i'll put i'll put all those on no problem yeah well um yeah thanks for your time today it's oh, well, been thank um, you Rob. it's been really, it's
1: really
0: nice. lovely thank you <laughs> there we have it everyone that's my interview with jackie o'carroll um wrapped up i found that a really fascinating conversation as you can probably tell i think it's something that's um important for us to acknowledge to embrace and to um to help us with a. Uh, along our journey and um, so if you enjoy this podcast please share it with a friend if you listen to it on apple podcast please leave me a review that would um help to get this podcast out there a little bit more and grow if you're watching on youtube you can subscribe and hit the bell for uh, notifications when new episodes come out and if you really feel like supporting the podcast you can um you can become a member on my Patreon page for as little as the price of a cup of coffee, in fact, less than a cup of coffee um, each month. You can become a member and help to continue and support me to put out more episodes like this with interesting people that are doing good in the world, that are helping, having a bit more. um, Yeah, basically they are helping and you will be helping me if you did that. So anyway, guys, um, until next time, have a good one.